Welcome to the Paradigm Podcast, where we explore revolutionary ideas with the world's most brilliant minds. I'm your host, Matt Galecki. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Geraint Lewis. Geraint is a renowned astrophysicist, best known for his work on dark energy and gravitational lensing. He's co-author of several books spanning physics and philosophy, including Where Did the Universe Come From?, The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, and A Fortunate Universe, which is about the fine-tuning problem in physics. Geraint is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Sydney, where he heads up the Gravitational Astrophysics Group. He's won several prestigious awards, both for his work in physics and in communication of science. And today, we're exploring questions at the very frontiers of what we know about the universe we live in. Geraint and I will be discussing the origins of the universe and everything in it, why the universe seems to be fine-tuned for life as we know it, the likelihood of extraterrestrial life in our universe, computer simulations of universes, and the possibility of simulating intelligent and even conscious beings, and the possibility that our universe is just one of many in a much larger multiverse. Okay, let's get to it. I'm pleased to bring you Geraint Lewis. I'm here with Garrett Lewis. Garrett, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I would have given you a proper introduction in the prelude to this episode, but would you mind giving the listeners a brief introduction to who you are and what it is you're working on? Okay, so uh, I'm Garrett Lewis. I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Sydney, part of the Sydney Institute for Astronomy. Um, I guess my day job is that I'm a cosmologist, and so my interest is in studying the workings of the universe, and I have a particular focus on what's known as the dark side of the universe. So this is the dark matter and dark energy that basically shape our entire cosmos. So I do theoretical and observational work to try and work out what these two dominant components are. I think a lot of people potentially wouldn't know the difference between a cosmologist and an astrophysicist and even an astronomer. Maybe it's worthwhile distinguishing these terms. What, what is a cosmologist? How does it differ from, let's say, an astrophysicist or an astronomer? Um, yeah, okay, so uh, the basic difference is that if you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and if you want to keep the conversation going, you say to them that I'm an astronomer um, and if you decide that you want to break the conversation and do something else, then you tell them that you're an astrophysicist. So it's, it's one, of those, one of those things that um, uh, the astrophysics side is the less romantic aspect of astronomy to some people, right? So astronomy is looking at the sky, looking at the beautiful objects, an astrophysicist applies the laws of science to try and work out how the different components of the universe operate. Then in that bucket are the cosmologists, and they're the ones that try to use the laws of science as we understand them, applied to the entire universe. So this is like the cosmic evolution. Um, where did everything come from? Where is it going? Uh, what are the forces that are uh, influencing the universe and changing it right now and in the past and in the future? So it it really is, in some level, the the ultimate big picture kind of topic. Yeah, yeah, and that certainly reflects in the topics we've got selected for today. We have a lot to get through, from simulated universes to the existence of quantum and cosmological multiverses. I think it's worth warming up to these topics. And so potentially, let's start with taking a step back and talking about what we know about the origins of it all. Perhaps you could start with a question that's also the title of one of your books, which is, where did the universe come from? What's the consensus view here on where and when the universe began? Well, let's, let's set the picture first uh, and understand, you know, firstly, where we are, right? 
So over the last century, we've come to realize we live in a universe that's almost uh, 14 billion years old. And we know that the universe is expanding and cooling. So it was hotter and denser in the past. And we can use the laws of physics as we understand them to keep pushing back and back towards that 14 billion years. So when the universe was only a, you know, a few seconds to minutes old, it was very hot. And we, there we need to worry about nuclear physics rather than the physics of everyday life. We push back even further. It's the realm of particle physics and the Large Hadron Collider, etc. And of course, what we want to do is push all the way back to time equals zero, the origin point. And one of the unhappy things about physics is that we can't do that at the moment. So the, 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 that book you mentioned, Where Did the Universe Come From? and Other Cosmic Questions, I wrote that with a, a fellow scientist. He's a, 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 a quantum physicist, works on quantum inf information and that side of things. And we have this embarrassment in physics at the moment is that uh, we have these two streams that make up the pillars of modern science. On one hand, we have Einstein's general theory of relativity, which describes the action of gravity. And on the other, we've got quantum mechanics, which describes the other fundamental forces. So electromagnetism, the strong force and the weak force, which take place inside the nuclei of atoms. And they've got two completely different languages. Einstein talks about curved space-time. Uh, quantum mechanics is all to do with probabilities and things popping in out of existence. And what happens is, is that as we get closer and closer back to that point t equals zero, we sort of see that the, the, the strengths of those forces, um, it, it becomes a battleground, right? What forces dominate and how do they interact, etc.? And in our present-day universe, we can quite happily separate gravity from the action of the other forces. And even through most of the life of the universe, we can do that. But when we get back to that initial point, we just can't get the fundamental forces to play together. So we have a, we have a door that we can't open, right? So, and it's a, a tiny, tiny fraction of a second after that point that physics sort of works. But the initial point, we do not know what happened at t equals zero. So I would say that there is no consensus, that, that um, most, it, most of it, all of it is effectively speculation about what happened at that point. And there are those that think that uh, the universe came from nothing. Lawrence Krauss had a book a few years ago called A Universe from Nothing. And uh, in fact, um, uh, Thomas Hertog, I think his name is, his <laughs> recent book on um, Hawking's last theory is a, is a play on that is that you push back far enough and that time and space become indistinguishable. And so there is no time equals zero when you really push back. Other people, though, think that that's not a very satisfying way to kick off a universe is from a true nothing, no time, no space. And so there are plenty of people who have ideas that our universe is a continuation of something that went before, a previous universe or... Um, even previous universes that somehow combine and, and led to the formation of our universe. So look, it's one of the big mysteries, and we, we've known about this problem for a long, long time. Einstein, when he died in 1955, was working on trying to write electromagnetism and gravity in the same kind of language. This is what string theory and M-theory and all those other buzzword theories are trying to do, is come up with that single framework, because once they do... We can open that door and we'll be able to say where the universe actually came from.
Yeah, it's a, it's a large open set of philosophical questions there. Perhaps taking a step back and thinking philosophically about what it is we're actually trying to do here, one of the things that always comes to mind for me as an open question is the legitimacy of taking the laws of physics as we currently understand them and then expanding them to these extreme points like the early days of the universe or different locations in the universe. Um, and I think the thought experiment that illustrates this question for me is that famous uh, thought experiment of the uh, elephant and the blind man. And so the story goes, there are some blind men living in a town. They've never heard of this animal called an elephant before. And one day a rumor comes about that there is this, this thing, this elephant uh, in the town, and the blind men decide to go and investigate to figure out what is the nature of this thing. And obviously being blind men, they can't see, so they, they use their hands to uh, sort of feel uh, the elephant and infer what, what it is. And one of them touches the trunk and infers, oh, okay, an elephant is something like a, a large snake-like creature. And one of them touches the leg and infers, okay, an elephant is, is like a, a pillar or a tree. One of them touches the tail and infers an elephant is um, like a, a ropey type creature. And obviously all, all of these people, are, they're basically essentially running experiments of a type, getting certain data about the, the elephant, but drawing really wrong conclusions. And the, the reason this is, is salient here is because, you know, we are also running experiments of a type with our observations, you know, our sensory apparatus that we use. Um, is very limited and narrow. Uh, we live in a particular point in time, and the experiments we run are very limited. Yet we use these observations to sort of infer physical laws that we think apply, you know, across all of space and time. And I've always wondered about the legitimacy of that. Is there any compelling reason to assume this is a valid thing to do? The compelling reason is that it's the simplest thing to assume, right? I mean, I mean, it's essentially started with Newton. Well, he was the one that um, figured out mathematical relation of gravity and was the one that realized it's the same force, take the apple from the tree as holds the moon in its orbit, right? And so Newton's gravitational law became Newton's universal gravitational law. It applied everywhere. Now, um, that's our starting assumption. Uh, and people would be very excited if they found that the laws of physics did vary on various large scales and over large times. And people do search for variations in the laws of physics. And um, the experiments that they do, they, they, might, they might sound, you might say to yourself, how can you test a law of physics 5 billion years ago or 10 billion years ago? Um, and of course, the answer is, is we can because scientists are smart people and they realize that the um, the different laws of physics at different times and different places would be uh, visible to us now, right? We can look back with our telescope and we can see galaxies uh, 5 billion years ago. We can dig into the ground and we can find rocks, you know, hundreds of millions of years old, etc. And we can use those to look at what are the processes that were in action when um, the, the rocks are forming or the galaxies are forming. And it turns out that um, there's a colleague of mine who's he's now over at the University of of, of Cambridge. Uh, he's been pushing this testing of the like one of the fundamental constants, the speed of light. Has the speed of light varied over the life of the universe? Why should it be three hundred thousand kilometers per second today and not some different value? And it turns out that of course the speed of light appears in many places in our equations, right? So you know you're looking at 
the emission of an atom at you know five billion years ago. And somewhere in that mathematics is the speed of light. And not only is it there in in one form, but it comes in different forms. So you have speed of light, speed of light squared, speed of light cubed, da 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 da. da. And so we're able to test these 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 numbers. And at at most, I think the limit is is that over the oh, pick a number, let's say. 10, last 10 billion years, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's that order of time scale. The speed of light can't have varied more than about three kilometers per second, right? So that's, that's a, a tiny fraction of a percent. So it sits with that picture that it hasn't changed, right? And um, do you know about the Okolo natural reactor? I don't. Oh, so the there, there was, um, I, I, I'll, I'll get the history completely screwed up, but it's the Okolo natural reactor, I think in Gabon in Africa. And it turns out there was a, a place hundreds of millions of years ago where water was running through some rocks and was carrying effectively uranium. And so the density of uranium in the rock built up and they got this low level nuclear reaction going on. And uh, that nuclear reaction produced some weird elements, I, I can't remember if it was plutonium or one of those ones, whatever, whatever gets spat out. And, and from the way that the nuclear reaction worked, you can work out again what the physical constants were like on Earth back in the past, etc. So look, it's, it's our starting assumption. And when we have done our tests, um, all the way back to like the formation of the first elements, nuclear synthesis in the first few minutes, that again depends upon these numbers to a very high degree. And if you start to mess around with them, you start to mess around with the way that the universe cooked elements. And we know that the, uh, in the first three minutes, the universe was 75% hydrogen, 25% helium. And when we look at the sun, it's 75% hydrogen, 25% helium. That, that primordial universe is still imprinted on the universe today. Now, that doesn't mean that we are, um, you know, that we go around demanding that the laws of physics don't change over space and time. It's our starting assumption. That's what it is. And it could be, and people do think that the laws of physics in the earliest time were, were different to the laws of physics today, but different has a very particular meaning there to do with uh, symmetries and perfection and all that kind of stuff. That, so the laws then weren't the same laws as we have today, but we can build a, a, a consistent picture back to that point. But, but I said, we, we are not so arrogant to demand that that's the way the universe has to be. Mm -hmm. these, uh, these broken symmetries at the sort of like the early stages of the universe do present this fascinating conundrum in a sense. You know, there's the question of why the universe looks the way it does. And yes. I think it has several different angles for which you can approach this question one of them is you know something along the lines of the the symmetry breaking and what the what that has resulted in there's also just this question of why there are laws of physics at all in the first place why is it not just in some sense some big mess and i, I don't know if you have a view here if, if philosophically there is even sense to that sort of question um is there is, is there thinking around the question why are there laws of physics in the first place um yeah, yes. Actually, I was, I, I was working on a YouTube script today to talk about precisely this kind of thing. And, and in my background, I say that that's the cover of one of my previous books, A Fortunate Universe, where we do discuss this kind of issue, right? And the, 
this we can imagine a, a a truly chaotic universe that didn't obey any laws, right? So no conservation laws. Things can arbitrarily change their speed and mass and all this kind of stuff. And as you said, it would probably be a very very messy place. Um, but then the next question is: is what kind of universe would we expect to find ourselves in, right? And of course, defining life is um, one of those hideously complicated topics because every time you've laid down your rule book, there's something that comes along and goes like, I don't quite fit with these rules, but, but am I alive? And you know, you've got viruses and prions and all these kind of things. But it's, I think it's apparent that life needs a couple of things, even the most general kind of life you can imagine. It needs some sort of complexity. Right, and in our universe, that complexity is provided by the periodic table. Uh, we have ninety-two natural elements, but we have uh, an infinite number of ways that we can stick them together into molecules, and those molecules can interact and do all kinds of things. And of course, we are—we are nothing more than molecular machines at some level, right? That's all of the processes going on, molecules doing their things. The other thing that we need is we need a flow of energy, right? Uh, energy comes in, is processed, goes back out again. And for us here on Earth, the ultimate source of that energy is, of course, the sun. Sunlight comes down, plants, we eat the plants, or we eat the animals eat the plants, et cetera, et cetera. We process that energy. So if you, have, if you do have a, a universe where all bets are off, then what complexity are you going to have? And of course, it can't be fleeting complexity. It can't be something joins up for a fraction of a second and then falls apart again because the rules have changed. Uh, you need complexity that can exist to and process energy and process information, all those other things. Where's that going to be? And again, what about a, 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 an energy source? You might have energy in your chaotic universe, right? But it's energy gradients. It's changes in, in energy that's important. And for us, of course... Uh, we have the heat of the sun contrasting the cold of deep space that puts this flow of energy in that al allows us to basically be here. So th there, there could be absolutely chaotic universes not governed by um, rules as we see them, but I wouldn't expect us to find ourselves in such a universe. We, we, we have to be in a universe which has the ability to have complexity and energy flow, right? And even if you have un universes with laws of physics, it's not guaranteed those conditions are going to appear in those uh, in all of those universes. Yeah, it, it feels like we're inching towards anthropic reasoning here and the anthropic principles. Uh, and this is something I'd actually really love to get your thoughts on because it's a concept or a topic that's brought up a lot when discussing these sorts of questions. But I think it's also very misunderstood. Uh, you know, people use the same words to mean several different things. It's not always clear what's implied or what's meant by them. I might leave it to you as an open question. What are your thoughts on anthropic reasoning and do you think it has any value in, in this domain? Well, okay, um, where, where do I start? I remember <laughs> as a, a graduate student um, and I was in a talk, very high profile professor who was talking about aspects of the universe. And uh, one of the people in the room is the current Astronomer Royal, uh, who's uh, Sir Martin Rees. And uh, the, the speaker invoked the anthropic principle 
And Martin Rees basically mentioned that, you know, that's the, the last refuge of the scoundrel is to, to call on the anthropic principle to explain things. And so I've, I've had a, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a to and a fro on the anthropic principle, mainly because as you said, it's, it's a word, uh, which can be used in conversation where people are not actually talking about the same thing, right? So the word anthropic principle is, um, is this, is this notion that to, to some people that it's a universe made for us, right? It's the anthropic aspect of it. And that's not really in my mind, what the anthropic principle is, is all about. So it, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, an article with my colleague, Luke Barnes, who's at, uh, at Western Sydney University, where, where we got so grumpy with the arguments people put forward with regards to the anthropic principle. It's in particular, a particular argument that we wrote this little, little article. And you probably know that there's the, um, a little story that Douglas Adams wrote about the anthropic principle, right? And it's, it's called the, you know, the puddle, right? Puddle thinking. You know, imagine a, a sentient puddle wakes up and finds itself sitting there in a hole in the road. And it's going to say to itself, Oh, you know, look at me, uh, uh, here I am in this hole and I'm perfectly shaped to fit this hole. And therefore this hole must have been made for me. And it, it basically goes on that, um, that this line of reasoning about how special the puddle is continues up until the point where the puddle completely evaporates, etc. And so often when we get into conversations about the anthropic principle, somebody will slam down the puddle argument and say, right, job done, right? Douglas Adams said this, bang, job done. And that's not what the anthropic principle is about. And in fact, if you, if you go back and you look at um, like Brad Carter, was it Brad Carter? I'm trying to remember, I think it was Brad Carter, who was the original uh, proposer of the anthropic principle in its modern form back in the early 1970s. I think he says that he, he chose the wrong word, right? that it's, it's, it's nothing to do with us and us being in this universe and us, you know, basically um, able to exist in this universe because we evolved in all this kind of stuff. It's a, it's a deeper question. The question that the puddle should have been asking is, is not, look how well I fit the, the, the hole. Is, is, the question is why the hole exists in the first place. Because the existence of a whole has got everything to do with structure and matter and how things hold together and all those kind of processes. Similarly, why does water fit into that hole? And that's to do with the properties of water, right? It's got molecules and they bind together in certain ways. So water is, is malleable and pourable, et cetera. And, and really the anthropic principle for us is asking the question, why do the conditions exist in this universe that allow me to be here? And again, those conditions are the existence of the periodic table, right? Those 92 natural elements, um, plus then the other things we mentioned, like energy flow, et cetera. So um, I, I, are you familiar with the, the value of stability? I am, but our listeners might not be. So let's, uh, let's expand on that. So, so you know, we, we have our 92 natural elements. And the elements are basically ordered by the number of protons they have in the nucleus, the number of positive charges. So hydrogen one, helium two, et cetera. But you can also add these other particles, the neutrons into the nuclei as well. 
So when you talk about a nucleus of, say, carbon, you can get, uh, you know, carbon-14, carbon-13, and they only change is the number of neutrons in the nucleus. And you might sort of say, well, so what, right? You can have different versions of carbon. But if you make this plot where you plot sort of the, the mass of an atom, which is proportional to the number of protons and neutrons versus the charge on the atom, on the nucleus, which is just the number of protons, and so you basically map out all of the isotopes, you construct this thing which is known as the Valley of Stability. That there's this narrow spine along the middle where most elements have effectively a stable isotope. It's not true of all elements, but you know, you, you go all the way along, you have this, this Valley of Stability. And then as you move away from this, this um, uh, line, then you get that the... Um, the, the isotopes become more and more unstable. And so, you know, if I, if I try to make uh, a carbon nucleus out of purely protons, it would just blow itself apart. If I tried to make it out of, um, you know, uh, several protons and 100 neutrons, again, it would fall apart. And so it, you've got to have this right mix of protons and neutrons for that to work. Now, it turns out, of course, is that if you talk about the stability of the nucleus of an atom, what are you really talking about? You're talking about a, a balancing match between two of the fundamental forces, okay? You have electromagnetism, which is trying to force those protons apart, right? They're tightly packed together, so the electromagnetic force is huge. Um, they only hold themselves together because the strong force, the strong nuclear force, is able to latch on to all of the particles, hold them all together. So imagine then if you, if you have your nuclear of atoms and you had a pair of dials where you could adjust the relative strengths, right? So if you start to wind down the strength of the strong force, then what you're going to get is that more and more nuclei are going to become unstable. They blow themselves apart before, um, uh, you know, so the strong force can't really hold them together. So what, what is, what's very easy to do uh, in, in hypothetical universes is to erase the value of stability. You make all elements basically radioactive. They all basically fall apart rather than having stable isotopes. Uh, and so once you've got that, if you could imagine that we have our universe, the universe creates the elements, all the usual stuff, but imagine it creates carbon, but that carbon then decays away in a thousand years or a million years or whatever. So what would that do for like the formation of life on earth where you need chemicals to join together and all this kind of stuff? If things are constantly breaking apart, then um, the, the stable complexity that you need is not there. So the, our existence, again, at some level is a reflection of the relative strengths of the strong force and electromagnetism. And you can actually go the other way as well, which is, uh, which is harder to think about. If you imagine that you keep winding up the strong force, right? So, you know, you just make it, um, make uh, nuclei more and more tightly bound together. And so what you do then is you do start to expand the value of stability. You get more and more stable nuclei. Um, and so instead of there being like one or two isotopes of carbon for your body to use, what if you've got 10 or 20 or 30 
carbon isotopes. All of them have different weights, right? They all have different masses. What is that going to do for the molecular structure? Because if you remember, inside the human body, it's the way molecules curl up that dictates how they operate with other molecules. So if, if you imagine that every single bit of your DNA was constructed slightly differently because all the masses are slightly differently, what is that going to do for the, the, the information processing and what, you know, all the stuff that goes on inside cells? So we do seem to be on that fine line where we've got a strip of stable elements. And if we had gone one way or the other, it seems like it would be very difficult for life to have the available complexity for existence. Yeah, we're, we're inching very close now to this fine tuning problem, in particular there with what you mentioned, the four fundamental forces that seem to have their relative strengths calibrated in a very particular way and uh, in a way that permits life as we know it. And here the anthropic principle is obviously often posited as a solution or potential resolution to this fine-tuning problem. Again, we wouldn't expect to find ourselves in a universe that, that didn't permit life because, you know, we, we are here. But one thing that always strikes me as really interesting is people seem to place this anthropic-type observation on a very different footing from other experimental observations. You know, I walk around and I notice that I'm existing and I'm thinking in a particular way and all these things. And from that, I infer, okay, the universe I live in is one that permits this kind of being to exist and this, this kind of cognitive processing to exist and so on. But if you really think about it, any experiment that I run kind of has the same character. You know, I could run an experiment in a lab, you know, maybe measure the speed of some things and I get a result. Truly from that, I can then infer, okay, well, the universe I exist in is one that permits this sort, this sort of experimental result. But people don't seem to think of it that way. You know, people seem to put the anthropic type reasoning on a much higher footing than any other experiment. And I find that rather curious. I would love to get your thoughts here. Is there any reason to treat the anthropic type of observations differently from any other experimental observations? You know, am I missing something here? Or, or, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what are your thoughts on, on this topic? Um, again, I, I think a lot, a lot of the issue is around confusion of what people mean when they say anthropic, right? I think that really leads to this, this I think almost people get fired up when they hear the word and it doesn't really matter what the arguments that come next, right? It's like, oh, good, I'm, you know, I'm spoiling for a fight. Here we go. Somebody said anthropic principle. But I, I sort of agree with you, right? I mean, the... Um, all observations are at some level are telling us something about the universe and our existence, uh, does tell us key things about the way the universe operates. And th there was a beautiful example that somebody mentioned to me. Um, I'm I, again, I, the, the history, I can't remember, right? So like how, how radioactive is a certain isotope of carbon? Okay. And and the answer was, you know, I know the answer. I can feel it in my bones. And what the answer meant is, of course, is that the fact that I have bones and they're, they're long lived and then they're, they're not radioactively decaying away. I know that the half-life is not a second or a minute or an hour, right? It's probably on the timescale of at least decades or centuries. So you've already learned something about the universe from, from making a very simple observation. The problem is, as I said, that, that when anthropic arguments are used, they sometimes people do sort of 
want to have a little bit of that wow factor, like I've just told you something profound. Um, and in reality, there's, there are not that many, oh, what, 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 let me, again, let me choose my words carefully here. The insights that we have gained from anthropic thinking, um, and I'll come back to the other aspects of uh, an anthropic principle in a moment. There are not that many of them, okay? We, uh, in terms of learning something brand new about the universe. Um, maybe the only real example is Fred Hoyle's uh, carbon and discovery where uh, you know he was working on trying to understand the formation of elements in the universe. Uh, it was the early days of nuclear physics as well. Of course, uh, nuclei of atoms are like electrons. They have shells and they have levels and all this kind of stuff. And he, he realized that if carbon had the, the nuclear structure, which they thought at the time, then um, the burning of uh, helium and beryllium into carbon would be really inefficient, that the universe wouldn't be able to produce enough carbon to explain our existence. And so he posited that we didn't know all the levels of the carbon atom and, and so predicted where the right level would be that would enhance the carbon production. And the story goes, he went and badgered somebody at uh, one of the nuclear labs and they found the, um, they, they found the right level there. Okay. So, so we learned something from his, his reasoning, but in reality, his reasoning wasn't, oh, um, I'm made of carbon and therefore I'll go and look at the carbon nucleus. He was trying to understand the formation of elements in stars. He knew there was carbon in the universe. The universe had to make it somehow, but it got wrapped up in this anthropic argument. Da, da, da. So, so yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a messy subject. And in fact, I think the idea that we make uh, profound statements about our universe based upon the anthropic principle is, is somewhat a dated concept. And, and anthropic ideas are used differently now, right? In the sense that people talk about um, not what um, our existence tells us about the universe, but about anthropic selection, right? In the sense that um, if there was some uh, randomness in the way that our universe was made in terms of the laws of physics, etc., then we should not expect to find ourselves in a universe that can't support us. And again, as I said, it sounds like trivial statement, but then once if you make that kind of statement and you think about what other kinds of universes there could have been, you, you're straight into the fine-tuning argument, which again, if you talk to my colleagues, some will say is trivial and irrelevant, and others will go, this is the most profound thing that we need to think about. So again, it, it's a, a messy topic. Okay, well, well, let's get into this fine-tuning question then. Again, taking a step back, we've said we've, we've got certain laws of physics that describe how the universe works. And in those laws, in those equations, there are particular physical constants, and those have specific values that we have to measure from the universe. And uh, they are sort of tuned in a particular way in order to you know, permit life as we know it and and the universe to look the way it does but you could ask the question what would happen if those constants were different why why do they exist in this particular sliver that they, they exist in and so you i mean you could imagine turning the dials on the universe as it were and asking what would happen um 
And so, I mean, mathematically, as a, as a thought experiment, this is an easy thing to do. You just imagine different values. But there is the question as to whether this is a really legitimate thing to do, whether there is any meaning whatsoever in asking such a question. Uh, and so I, I might actually put that to you as an open question. You know, how how big of a problem is this fine-tuning idea? How should we How should we think about this problem? Can I take one tiny step back? So uh, you mentioned the physical constants there. And again, I think it's important to emphasize that, um, you know, when we do physics, uh, you know, theoretical physics, we do all the maths, et cetera. Look how smart I am. I can integrate these equations. And, you know, you can get the smartest person. Imagine you took, uh, like, let's take Paul Dirac, one of the greatest physicists of the, the last century, and uh, put him in a room, okay, get him to work out the maths of um, of the way a charged particle interacts with electromagnetism, all this kind of stuff, right? So you give them the basic rules. You get the equations at the end of the day and you say to Dirac, right, make me a prediction based on those equations. Like a prediction like when my machine in my laboratory will go ping. And he can't, right? He can't because um, physics is more than just the maths. We have quantities that we have to ask nature for to do physics. So nowhere in the maths does it set the mass of the electron. Nowhere in the maths does it set the charge. Nowhere in the maths does it set the speed of light. None of that. Dirac would have to say to the experimenters, give me all of these values. I'll put them into my equations and I will make my prediction. So we do have this issue that, that the maths of physics are sterile unless we ask nature for help. And that has bothered physicists, right? So there's a number, the fine structure constant, strength of electromagnetism, uh, roughly one over 137. And Feynman has this quote that, you know, uh, every theoretical physicist puts this number up on their wall and they worry about it. And, you know, there was a dam in there somewhere because it's Feynman. Um, but it was, you know, a, a number uh, that's basically, you know, given from on high without any explanation whatsoever. Right. So we have these numbers and there's a set of numbers that we need and we can't do physics without them. And as you said, we have particular values in our universe and I can take the maths, of course, and I can try that maths with different combinations of these values. I mean, I, I can do the maths and I can do the maths and assume that electrons each weigh a kilogram. Uh, there's nothing to stop me doing that in the maths. It's not our universe, but it is a universe, right? It's a mathematical universe. Um, and so what we see is that when we play the mathematical games, what we find is that very quickly universes become dead and sterile, right? I, if, if, if I did, um, imagine I increase the mass of the electron. Let's take a simple particle. Electrons orbit on the outside of the atoms, and mostly we can ignore them except for their charge because they have so little mass, you know, one two thousandth the mass of a proton. But imagine now that your electrons are chunky, Maybe the, the mass of a proton make them bigger. Well, what would that do? Well, that would make your entire atoms jiggle around. Now, if you've got that situation where atoms jiggle around, how do they stick together to form solids and liquids if they've got all this energy that's already bouncing around there? So, so messing around with the mass of the electron, um, if you make it too heavy, destroys matter. And it gets worse. So. Um, you know that we have uh, protons and neutrons. We've mentioned those guys, but we know that inside those protons and neutrons, we have particles called quarks. And 
Inside the proton, there's two up quarks and a down quark. Inside the neutron, two down quarks and up quark. And uh, what we have is that the uh, proton is the lowest mass particle with three quarks in it. It's a baryon, which means that any other baryon decays into a proton. So you leave a neutron alone for 15 minutes and it can decay into a, a, a proton because there's enough energy to do that. Spit out an electron. Now, if I start to adjust the masses of the up and down quark, I can start to play silly games. I can, I can play a game where very quickly the lowest mass baryon becomes the neutron, not the proton. So protons decay into neutrons. So if that happened and eventually all the protons decay in our universe, we have neutrons everywhere. And neutrons aren't electrically charged. They, they don't gather electrons. So you can't join them together to make atoms and molecules, etc. A neutron universe is, is dead. It's sterile. I could also play the game of, of adjusting them again. So I get three up quarks being the lowest mass baryon. So three up quarks have a charge of two. It's a, a particle known as the delta plus plus particle. Again, particle physicists are rubbish at naming things, right? Delta plus plus. Now, uh, so you might think, oh, okay, so I've now created a, a, a particle that's going to be uh, everywhere instead of the proton. But the delta plus plus with a charge of two attracts two electrons. And what does that look like? Well, that looks like a helium atom. And helium is the most unreactive element in the universe. It doesn't bother with anything. They're called noble gases for a reason, right? They just do not get involved in any of that stuff. So we, we have no periodic table. We have helium or helium-like atom and nothing else. So can we get complexity in that universe, et cetera? So we, you can play this with all of the physical constants. You can mess around and it's easy to kill a universe, right? dead easy to end up with a dead and sterile universe. And so if you imagine, as you mentioned, the hypothetical parameter space of what values the electron mass could be, its charge, the quark masses, strength of gravity, etc. And at each point you put the subsequent universe at that point, most of them are dead and every so often you get a little island where you get a little bit of complexity and that's where we find ourselves unsurprisingly. Now, oh, sorry. Now, now that then there's the bigger question of that potential parameter space. Is that a hypothetical parameter space, or is it a realized parameter space? And then you know this is where the arguments really start. So some people say to us, um, "What we." We don't need to worry about any of this stuff, right? We don't need to worry about other universes. The problem is, is that we just haven't fought hard enough, right? And that there's this dream in physics, and it is a dream. It's a wish, a hope, a prayer, that if we just keep doing more and more maths and you know working our way through, eventually there will be no uh, free constants left. And what I mean by that is, eventually somebody will work out that the mass of an electron is oh. Yeah, you know, let's, let's, it's always ratios so they're dimensionless, but let's call it the mass of the electron, is pi to the power of E plus some other mathematical form, purely mathematical. And eventually we'll get all the way to the bottom, we'll have our lovely mathematics, and there'll be no 
freedom in the values of the constants. So, you know, there's this big C and there's a pinpoint where we are, but that's the only place that we could be, right? That's what the math says. And again, physicists would pat themselves on the back, but in a moment they'd start to think a little bit, right? It is why, why this combination of mathematics, right? Because uh, in, in the library of possible maths, you know, the, the maths that we use to describe the physical universe is a pamphlet compared to all the rest of the maths. Why was this bit of math selected, right, out of all of the possible maths? And of course, once we've got that, 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 all that maths written down, how do you even approach that question? Because you're now asking, what, where did the universe come from? What sets the maths? And you're already back to the same kind of fine-tuning argument. The other question then is, is that possibly these other universes are realized. Is that, that there's a mechanism that brings universes into being and universes are spat out and we don't know how they're spat out and we don't know what, what process generates them. But somewhere in there, you know, there was a roll of the dice and our universe got spat out with our combination of, of constants and this is where we find ourselves. So, yeah, it's... Um, again, I'm probably going to be saying that this is messy quite a lot, right? But, but again, it's it's a it's a, a very much a place of argument. We don't. I'm not. I am. I'm personally am not satisfied with the if we do enough maths, we don't need to worry about this because I think all we do is we move the problem somewhere else. But then we have the question of how do you realize all of these other potential universes? Yeah. Well, there's several different directions we could take this now. I mean, firstly, I, I certainly agree with you that just boiling everything down to one single equation doesn't fully solve the issue here because you could always ask another why. You could always ask why that particular equation and, and not something else. And I think actually, obviously, this is a general uh, question in science. You could always keep asking whys and maybe at some point this cascade of whys has to end with something that has no answer. And so you can never get to the to the bottom of that. You kind of do just push the the why down to a different level. Um, but maybe before we get into the actual question of, you know, the fine tuning of these particular parameters and whether there is any legitimacy in doing so and whether it's physically meaningful, it's probably worth discussing what we even mean by existence and, and reality, because we're going to be talking about the existence of multiple universes and other things. And so we should be clear about what we actually mean here. And this is, this is quite a difficult question, a little bit metaphysical in some sense. But is there, is there sort of a, a standardized or consensus view in physics or in cosmology as to what we mean when we talk about concepts like existence and reality? How do you, how do you think about this question? You know, how would you define what is reality? What is existence? Um, I mean, you, you probably already know this, right? But, you know, uh, in general, physicists don't make very good philosophers. <laughs> and so, uh, and in fact, we... We do tend to argue quite a bit. And in fact, we, we have gone down this road, probably started by Richard Feynman of saying that philosophy brings nothing useful to physics. So physicists generally don't ask that question about what, you know, how do I define reality, et cetera, right? You start off with your, your right, I've got three uh, dimensions of space, one of time. I've got this observation. What do I need to do to explain that? Uh, and they leave the philosophers to to argue about 
definitions and meanings of reality and all this kind of stuff. And we, um, and, and then when we do meet, it's, it's a, often an ugly kind of clash because, again, we, we often use the same words to just to, uh, in different ways. So, yeah, for a, for a physicist, I think there, there's a very operational definition of what real means in that, you know, real is the thing that makes the machine go ping. I, I set up an experiment. I, I can't see an electron, okay? I, I, uh, I will never really resolve an individual electron because if in our current series, they have no size at all, right? So I'm not going to be able to see it. But I have a physical description of what those electrons can do based upon the, the theories that have been developed and the experiments that have been done. And I know that if I set up a particular apparatus, that something will happen at that end. And my interpretation is, is that because the electrons flow through, and the, but I can take that idea and then I can apply it to something else and it works and it works and it works. So you have a very operational, right? It's, it's there. I can do stuff with it. I can make predictions. And I'm happy with that operational definition until I'm not happy anymore. So physicists uh, are pragmatic in the way that um, politicians aren't, in the sense that we do change our minds. And of course, the classic story of this, again, is the electron, right? The electron started off as um, rays of stuff that people decided were particles because they produced little dots all this kind of stuff so you produce this this ray of particles etc and we were all happy with that right so we we're all happy with this effectively a billiard ball picture of what electrons are until we get to the 1920s and 30s the arrival of quantum mechanics and then we're told that uh, electrons are not really little billiard balls they're now quantum thingies that have particle and wave-like properties and this is how we need to see them so we, we're happy to shift our, our, our view of what reality means um, when, as long as it, it, it basically makes the next prediction, right? That, that's, the, that's the game in town is, is predicting what happens next. And one of my, one of my favorite examples about this is, you know, I teach first year physics um, and uh, I've taught um, electromagnetism to our first year class, right? And you basically stand there and you ask the question, right? Is is the magnetic field real? And you go, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, is the magnetic field in this room with me right now? And then you sort of realize is that, um, what do I mean when I say magnetic field? And you really say, well, I do an experiment and something happens. And the ex explanation is, is that there's this magnetic field, da, 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 da. But it's reality? Well, you know, it's a useful concept. And then when you go to the next level, when you go up to quantum electrodynamics, right? So that's the quantum description of how magnetic fields work. That classical notion of a magnetic field is gone, right? It's replaced by particle exchanges and all this kind of stuff that look like a magnetic field. But, you know, we, 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 there wasn't this schism in physics when people had to go, no, I want to keep the magnetic field. And others go, no, we must let it go. It's just saying, oh pragmatic decision, I'll move over to the quantum description because that gives me even better answers to my experiment. I think that's actually a really good answer. It really resonates, despite your, your view that physicists don't make good philosophers. 
that's that's certainly consistent with my view that I've taken from several places, uh, in particular from from David Deutsch, who I mean, obviously he's the he's a well known physicist, kind of bridges the the gap between physics and philosophy, and uh, probably most well known as sort of the the father of quantum computing. Um, and he has this view, I'm not sure which book it's in, whether it's Fabric of Reality or The Beginning of Infinity, potentially both. But his, his definition of reality there is something is real if and only if it appears in our best explanation for something. And he's got a precise definition for, for what a best explanation is. But basically, it's the explanation that's most difficult to vary. Um, and, you know, read read the book. It, it, it's, it's an excellent book. And... Um, this concept actually is is sort of very robust because it means that you know whether something is in a piece of mathematics or in a linguistic description, if it's a requirement in order to explain something, and a requirement in our best explanation for something, we're kind of compelled to treat this thing as as real in a sense because it's needed to be there. And this this is not just an abstract sort of mathematical definition; it applies to you know pretty much everything if you think about it that we consider to be real. You know, we, we walking around in the real world, we observe things with our senses. This is a particular interface with which we interact with the universe. And uh, we interpret what we see and what we feel and what we, um, you know, smell, taste, etc. in particular theory-laden ways. And we assign the property of reality based on what it is we think sort of best describes or best explains what is the sensory apparatus that we're getting. And I, I think it's I think it's actually a, a really sort of robust definition, definitely the best I've seen. However, it does lead to sort of a, a couple interesting consequences because when applied to concepts like the multiverse, for example, these in some ways are required to explain some of the the things that we observe. And they, I guess they are featured in our best explanations for things. And for the same, in the same token, we're then sort of compelled to somehow treat them as real in some sense. I think the the um, the best example I know here, also from David Deutsch, is in the, the realm of quantum computing. You know, we, we all know that it's very difficult to factorize very large prime numbers classically. Running this on a, on a classical computer is, you know, it's so resource intensive, we basically can't do it. And this is obviously the foundation of cryptography. It's, it's why, you know, public-private key cryptography works, for example. Uh, but in the quantum realm, you know, quantum computer, this is this is very easy. We have Shor's algorithm, which can factorize very large um, uh, prime numbers, sorry, very large numbers into their prime factors uh, very easily. And David then poses the question, well, where is the factorization happening? You know, you can prove that it happens. Where does it happen? And his conclusion is that it happens in the multiverse. And then beyond this, there's even different views of the multiverse. You know, Max Tegmark has this four-level model for the multiverse, where level one is is sort of fairly standard. You know, he says that there is a certain distance out uh, in the universe past which we can't see, just because light takes time to travel to us. And so beyond that, that's sort of like the first level of the multiverse. But then this goes all the way up to his fourth level, which is all mathematical structures, and it gets very abstract. And so, you know, there are very many different ways we can think about this multiverse object. And so I might put it to you, you know, you've talked about the multiverse in several different places. I would love to get your view here. How should, how should we think about this concept of the multiverse? Okay. Uh, again, multiverse is one of those words that people use and often they're not talking about the same thing, right? So um, 
so, so my feeling with regards to fine tuning, right, is is that for me that is evidence that that we are part of a multiverse, right? It, to, to me, this this notion that no, I said I don't like the the idea that we will that there is only a, a, a pinprick in probability space of all the possible universes um, that they could be realized. But then for me, then that, that means that these other universes do play out somewhere, that there is a, a multiverse out there. And I, and, and all honesty, I, I don't understand why some people object to that notion so vehemently in the sense that, um, so fair enough, we're in one universe and we can test one universe. But to me, it just feels strange that it, that only whatever it was only bothered creating one universe, right? If you're going to create one, you may as well make many of them, kind of thing. So I, I mean, I think it's I think it is a I think it is a, um, a a valid hypothesis as a solution to fine tuning. And I, I I think the word hypothesis there is important, right? And I I. I know that the the scientific method is a idealized kind of thing that doesn't really happen, but it, it, people do propose hypotheses. And I said, for me, that's what the the, the multiverse is a, a, a useful uh, potential solution for fine tuning. Now, other people would turn to other areas of physics, um, in particular, this notion of inflation in the early epoch of the universe. So, you know, this grew in the 1980s from work by um, uh, Alan Guth that the universe had this rapid burst of expansion, lasted the, the tiniest sliver of a second, but basically imprinted the universe with several of the key features we see around us. But what was realized is that um, the inflation that Guth proposed could not be the 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 whole story. There was a problem about, you know, once inflation gets started, how does it stop? And how does it stop on a universe-wide scale? And the, it was revised in the early 1980s to this notion of eternal inflation, where inflation starts and it just keeps going, right? But what happens is that at pockets, inflation stops. So you've got this super inflating overall universe, but these pockets essentially crystallize out of the expansion and each of these pockets is a universe. So it'd be much bigger than the, our observable universe, but there'd be all of these pockets out there. And the question is, we know, what, what would the conditions in each of these individual universes be like? And of course, they, you know, going into the 1990s and then 2000s, it was realized that the dream of string theory, this one of these um, uh, theories of everything where we would have this single uh, framework to describe gravity and other forces. It was hoped that that would be a theory that would give us, I said, a unique universe. But it turned out that it it doesn't give you anything unique. It gives you a huge number of possibilities, and the number is you know somewhere between ten to the five hundred and infinity, right? Whatever is a massive number. Uh, and people have hypothesized that what happens is that as universes crystallize out of inflation, they you know they they go from that beautiful, supersymmetric, hot state that it is, and then cool down rapidly. And as they cool, the way they cool um, 
basically gets imprinted with a unique set of the laws of physics. So each bubble in the in this overall um, expansion is a universe with a different set of laws of physics. And so this is where each of those various um, potential universes could play out is in this overall super large expansion. And they, I said, I think the the guys in inflation they 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 are very happy with this um, this eternal inflation that this this is going on. And there are those that tell you that therefore a multiverse has to exist, right? If it's eternal inflation, then the process that allowed our universe to crystallize out must happen over and over and over and over again. So yeah, I, again, I, I think it's, a, it's a, a reasonable hypothesis. The question that we have, though, is taking that next step, right? So I, again, I don't believe that the uh, uh, scientific method exists. I don't get up in the morning, pose a hypothesis kind of thing. Um, but we, what we have to do is we have to explore the consequences, right? So at the moment, the simplest idea you have of uh, a multiverse, like um, as you mentioned, the the level one multiverse where we have these just regions outside of our horizon, we can't interact with them. So are they scientific, right? So that this is the big question. If you can't interact with them, are they scientific? They may as well be unicorns at the bottom of the garden. And similarly with the universes in this eternal inflation, we can't interact with them. So, you know, it's not scientific to even talk about them. But do we really know that we can't interact with them? I mean, this is, this is the key question. Uh, if, if we've proposed a hypothesis, then we need to develop that hypothesis and come up with a mathematical framework and examine the consequences to see whether or not there would be uh, consequences for our universe from the existence of other universes. And um, this, this is not a new idea, right? Um, you know, Roger Penrose, who got the Nobel Prize only two or three years ago now um, for his work on black holes, he's been pushing this particular wagon for a while that you know, he believes in a, a multiverse kind of picture, somewhat different to this one, but not completely dissimilar, where universes can collide. And that if universes collide, then they, they essentially leave scars on one another and we should look out for those scars. And in particular, what he was talking about is that the, the leftover radiation from the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background radiation, could contain patterns which were imprinted in collisions between universes. And he claims that he can see them. Other people think that he may have squinted at the picture a little bit too hard. Um, but again, what, what he's doing is saying, if universes collide, I, I'm going to suggest that this is a potential observable. And until we've expanded uh, those hypotheses and really explored them, we don't know if other universes are truly beyond our grasp or not. They might be, and we, that, that's the conclusion. And we might just say, right, there's our scientific dead end. We can't get any further with this idea, but we tried. Or it might say, oh, there is a, an imprint, a window or something that allows us to know about other universes. But we have to take that next step. Yeah, I think what gets people a little bit heated in this question is maybe not necessarily whether today we can perform experiments to measure other universes, but it's, it's more the in-principle question. You know, in-principle, 
is there some mechanism by which we could run an experiment and and test the existence of these universes? You know, for, for example, if you take Penrose's idea that there are some signatures of other universes out there in the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, you know, that that's a significantly smaller uh, sort of leap to take. Um, you know, I think people are more comfortable with that if, if, if you could find those signatures. But when you get to more abstract ideas, uh, you know, for example, Max Tegmark's level four multiverse, which is the existence of just purely mathematical structures, basically, basically the existence of the platonic ideal. Um, it, it's very unclear that this could ever be tested in any way. And I think that's, that's the area where it gets a, even more sort of unclear whether we're dealing with something that could be called scientific or, or you know, something that's not, like something that's pseudoscientific. It really, and many of these questions sit on the borderline in this gray area. So I'd, l- I'd love to get your view here in talking about the multiverse of all these different types. You know, how far can we take it? What, what, what are we justified in sort of suggesting? Um, wh- where, where do we go and where do we draw the line in these, uh, I guess, these hypotheses of, of multiverses? Well, okay, so there's an interesting question. That, that, and and this, this normally gets me into trouble, so I'll, I'll choose my words carefully, right? Now, wh- one of the weird things about being a physicist, being a scientist, right, is that we're, we're not card-carrying members in the sense that we're all free agents and we do what we like. And um, it, it's not really up to, well, let, let me be, again, I'll be careful. It's not the role of scientists to tell other scientists what is scientific or not. So it's, it's actually, uh, it's used as a bit of a slapdown from people by saying that's unscientific, that you, you're doing that, that's unscientific. Uh, I get this when I talk about the multiverse, and I, 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 I do stress that the multiverse is a hypothesis. And I, say, I have to say to them, what aspect of proposing a hypothesis is unscientific, right? I can propose any hypothesis I want. Uh, you know, there's no rules. It's, it's not like we have to fill in a form and get it signed by the, the great scientist who lives whatever. So you can propose hypotheses, but you have to then follow the scientific path. You have to go to that next step of um, uh, developing the theories and asking about whether or not it's testable and that kind of thing. So I think at the moment where people stamp their feet and basically say, you shall not talk about the multiverse because it is not scientific, they themselves are not being scientific. They are saying to people, you can't propose that hypothesis. You ask them, why can't I propose it? And often it boils down to, I don't like it. Okay, that's what it is. So I I am happy for anyone to have discussions about their ideas, their hypotheses, etc. But they have to be clear what it is that they're talking about, right? And I said, one of the things that you get with the discussions of the multiverse is you get people making definitive statements when we are nowhere near the stage of making definitive statements. So people who say, um, we can't discuss the multiverse because it's not scientific, uh, have made made a definitive statement themselves that the multiverse is not scientific. We do not know if the multiverse is is 
testable or not testable? So if, does it fall into the scientific basket or doesn't it? So in my mind, in my mind, the conversation should be open and we should have this, but be sure that we are defining what it is that we're talking about, right? The problem is, of course, is that when science reaches the media, the media don't deal with the, the, the true language of, of physicists and they love the definitive statements. And they love the definitive statements that make it sound like the, the books are going to be rewritten or that there's a conflict or whatever it is. So again, um, it's, in my mind, it's a perfectly fine hypothesis to discuss. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I mean, that resonates with lots of other areas of physics. If you look historically, it's happened plenty of times that, uh, you know, new hypotheses have been put down that seemed really strange and counterintuitive, but turned out to be true. I mean, I can name plenty of examples. The, the idea that the Earth is not the center of the universe, uh, that the sun um, is the center of our solar system and we orbit the sun along with the other planets. The, the, the idea that the Earth is round and not flat, uh, plenty of ideas. And even then, with the multiverse view specifically, if you do give up this view, you have to accept a lot of other fairly strange things as well, in particular in the domain of quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, so, Sometimes I think it's a bit of an historical accident that the multiverse view came later than it did. And this is why it seems a bit of like a novel idea, but well, the alternative, the, the wave function view or wave mechanics view, I mean, there you have to assume, you know, suppose you're, you're modeling the evolution of a particle. You have to assume at the point of measurement, there is this crazy wave function collapse thing, which is non-local. It breaks all the symmetries that we expect to see in other areas of physics. Um, it puts the observer of the experiment in a sort of fairly unique position that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And so it's full of, it's full of sort of very strange implications. And so in that sense, the multiverse view is potentially the, the more parsimonious view. Um, one, one place where it is essentially less uh, abstract is in computer simulations of the physical laws and of universes. You know, you're there, we, we sort of plug our mathematical equations into a computer, uh, there are parameters, and we can set values for those parameters. It's very straightforward. You, you choose different parameters, you run the simulation, and out pops the result. And so that's substantially less um, abstract than some sort of uh, imagined multiverse. And so I would love to get to this topic now because, you know, running computer simulations of universes, believe it or not, that is something that, that people do. And um, you, you've, you've uh, talked about this, and I think you, you've, you've done these in your, in your work. Um, so let's get on to that question. I'd like to talk about what it is that we're doing when we um, model or simulate a, the evolution of a universe on a computer. What what is it that we are? What is it that we're simulating there? Yeah. So so this this has grown massively in the last thirty to forty years, right? So what one of, one of the issues that we have is that um, we want to use the laws of physics to describe the universe, and it, it might be the universe that all kinds of scales, the, the life of an individual star, the motion of a galaxy, the flow of matter uh, after the Big Bang, etc. And the problem is, is that those scenarios are very complicated in the sense that they are uh, like in the early universe, you've got uh, relatively simple physics. You can think about just two things that matter on the large scale. You can think about the expansion of the universe kind of pull things apart. 
and you can think about gravity sort of pulling things together. But the universe was almost completely smooth, but it was slightly ripply. And the question is, how do those ripples grow over time? And so what happens is that um, if you try to write down an analytic equation right, to describe that, you can do some approximations, you can, you can transform your equations into linear equations, et cetera. But in reality, the complexity results to nonlinear solutions, which is the nightmare for, for not just for cosmology, but, you know, you want to you simulate a jet engine, right? So, you know, air goes in, fuel goes in, et cetera. There's lots of nonlinear stuff in there. I, calculations, which we, um, we, we struggle to do uh, with paper and pen, but you can get a computer to brute force its way through those calculations. So yeah, it, in, in what happens, of course, is that, um, that if we think of something that changes with time, we would normally, uh, to work out the effect of that change, we would integrate that change over time. And we can integrate simple functions, but complicated functions we can't, we can't integrate. But I can say to a computer, here's a complicated function, Slice it up into little pieces and add them up, and that's the integration. That's how the integration works. And of course, it can slice into finer and finer pieces. And it's the same for motion and all these other things. So, so what we do is like we take a a representative volume, i.e., we we define a chunk of the universe, make it a billion light years on the side, and to each point in space we assign a, a particle. Right, that's that's what we do. Each particle represents a local piece of mass. And we basically um, take the laws of physics, the expansion of the universe, gravity, and we say, what are the forces acting on that particle? We advance it a tiny time step, so it moves, and then it moves again, moves again, but they all move. And we get this sort of dance of all the particles as they all move around to give us the, the flow of matter in the universe. And... It works incredibly well. We, when we do that, we end up with a representation of where all the mass is. Lots of it's concentrated into lumps, the clusters. There are big empty areas, which are the voids, and there's structure in between. It resembles the universe around us. But then we can add more complicated physics. So if we want to add gas into the, the simulations, now, um, most of the matter in the universe is dark matter. It's very simple stuff. It only responds to gravity. Gas, however, has other properties. It has temperature and density, and it also has state. It can be neutral or plasma. And gas, when it collides, can shock and collapse and form stars. Those stars burn. And then after a million years or a billion years, they explode and their gas gets recycled out, etc. All of that is governed by different equations, which we, we can integrate and step our way through. So the, the state of the art now is that you represent a big chunk of the universe. You put in, um, you put in dark matter, you put in gas, you put in the uh, expansion of the universe and you watch it go and you actually can play out the evolution of the universe to a very high degree. It, it works. In fact, it's somewhat terrified how well it works. And, and the, um, the, the sort of um, stumbling block constantly is that we always want to demand more computational power because the more computer power, the more particles we can put in our simulation. That means we get a finer resolution, which means we can add more and more physics, et cetera. But every time we add something, there's a computational cost. 
So these simulations are usually done on supercomputers uh, and they can occupy entire supercomputers and they can take years to basically march their way through all of these calculations. But it's the only way that we can truly study all of this non-linear behavior in the evolution of the universe. I've seen some of the outputs of these simulations and it is absolutely phenomenal what comes out of it. Uh, one of the big, interesting philosophical questions that emerges from this is a question as to what happens in the limit of um, of large enough computational power, more accurate enough models. So you can imagine if we continue progressing with these uh, simulations, at some point we're going to have a much more ac more accurate representation of the laws of physics. We're going to have uh, much higher resolution models run on on much larger computers, and so you would expect results to emerge that more accurately resemble the actual universe we live in. And if that's true, it does open up the question as to, um, you know, how far this could go. And in particular, if we could get down to the resolution where, you know, chemicals are emerging, strands of DNA and biological life are emerging, uh, this is a sort of a philosophical, philosophically heated area. Um, so I would like to get your views here. In principle, is this, is this something that's achievable in the limit with these, with these simulations? I would say, in principle, yes, you could you could keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Now, of course, you know, the, the there is an idea that um, if you wanted to compute the universe at the scale of individual atoms, then you would need a computer the size of the universe. And in fact, why would you need to compute them? You just have all the atoms, then they would do it all for you kind of thing. But in principle, yes, we can we can push things down. We already do things on a whole range of scales, right? There are people who do the ab initio molecular structure. They look at individual molecules. And you know, physics is done at a range of scales, and we try and pin them all together from bottom to top. And in theory, um, as we build up our computational power, we should be able to move and erase those boundaries till eventually, with a, with a big enough computer, it could trace all of those things and you could get to the limit where, you know, in your volume of the universe, which is a billion light years across, the resolution is fine enough to see individual galaxies with individual stars, with individual planets, the geology on the planet, the chemistry of the atmosphere, the movement of the oceans, and then down and down and down. And do you get the equivalent of synthetic life? inside your your simulations and and then of course as you said it, the cans of worms is synthetic consciousness right so it, you know there's 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 arguments over over if if consciousness is purely physical right and i i'm one of those people that think that that you don't need to add magic to the universe to explain what's going on consciousness is complex part of a com complex system but people are trying to simulate complex systems right now. I, I know I, I, have a, I have a very close colleague who's building uh, hardwired brains, right, that can think and remember and things. And you sort of think if, you know, maybe not 10 years, maybe not 100 years, maybe not even 1,000 years, but if we could continue this development, then why wouldn't it be possible to get a conscious structure if it's complexity? is enough to mirror whatever goes on in our brain. The, the bigger question is whether or not we recognize that consciousness, right? That's, that's a different question. But 
uh, in principle, I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And and when you said, you know, whether we'd be able to recognize uh, that consciousness, it, it reminds me, I, I recently had a conversation with Michael Levin, who is a well-known biologist and cognitive scientist. And we talked about unconventional forms of life and cognition. And um, he makes the interesting point that, you know, we're not very good judges as to what is and is not intelligence. Um, we have a sort of very limited understanding of what intelligence is, certainly extremely limited of, of what consciousness is. And, you know, based on that, we should probably take the humble approach to most of these questions and assume um, or, or err on the side of assuming that things are intelligent or are conscious until we have a better theory uh, to suggest otherwise. I think that's certainly the wise um, viewpoint here. However, it does, I think, imply, it leads to a few interesting implications. Um, in the context of simulated universes, what we've just said, in the limit of enough computational power, um, sufficiently detailed laws of physics that we're modeling in these computer simulations, we do think it's possible to produce intelligences. And then you can imagine that at some point we'll be running thousands of these simulations, who, who knows how many, and some fraction of them might have beings inside them that are kind of contemplating questions like we're contemplating right now. They might be asking, you know, what is the nature of this universe we live in? Why uh, are the laws set the way they are? Why are the constants uh, of, of nature set the way they are? Or whatever it may be, it could be sort of very different types of intelligence. But nonetheless, we have some sort of conscious observer moments simulated in these computers and then it becomes this weird question of statistics where, well, we've got thousands of simulations happening. If I look at all the possible observer moments, most of them are simulated observer moments. And so playing the question back on ourselves, does that imply that statistically we are, I guess, more likely to be living in a simulated universe than not? Um, I personally don't really know how to think about these questions just yet. It's a uh, you know, you can take the, the, the one lens that it's um, just sort of all thought experiment and you shouldn't give much credence to it. Um, on the other hand, the statistics do seem relatively compelling. Um, I haven't really got my head around it yet. I would love to get your views on this point. Uh, what are your views here? Do you think there is a coherent way to, to think about this? And in particular, anything else that doesn't uh, sort of naturally lead us to conclude, okay, we're definitely living in a simulation? I must admit, my thoughts around this are not crystal clear. In the, and there's a couple of things. That, number one, you mentioned about um, uh, universes with consciousness in there, et cetera. One of the things that has always bothered me is that what if, what if we are not the, not if, what if consciousness in the simulation is not the intention of the, of the simulator? Or if they're interested in something else and you know, consciousness just happens somewhere, else, somewhere in there for some reason that they, they don't really care about that, okay? Um, yeah, I, I do get wary with, with arguments from, um, from, uh, numbers of, of potential consciousness kind of, and where we are in that distribution, um, uh, and, and w whether or not it means that we are in a simulation ourselves, there's a, there's an, an older argument that um, come, comes from the anthropic principle, right? Which is that in the in the future they will develop computers which are powerful enough 
to basically simulate the consciousness of everybody who's ever existed, et cetera. And then if you think about all the potential consciousnesses, et cetera, we are more likely to be living in that computer at the end of time than we are today kind of argument. Um, yeah, look, I, d I don't know. I don't know if I have a clear argument one way or another. I, uh, th th there was a, um, a little YouTube video I watched recently by Kyrgyzstat, is that his name? I can't remember. Po pointing out right, that um, in terms of the distribution of all humans that ever live, okay, that we are either very close to the end or very close to the beginning. And that is uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, I, I, again, and I, I, it's an argument from numbers. And these arguments have bothered me since the, the 90s, since, you know, the um, Gott's doomsday argument. Mm -hmm. Now you, you're somewhere in the middle 90%. And it's like, I, what's the right way to think about these? So, yeah, I, I, don't have a, a, I don't have a coherent answer, I think. Yeah, I certainly share the same worry, though. I, I do try to take the optimistic view here that... We're near the beginning. Um, in the same way as if you ask someone to pick a random integer, uh, any number they give you, no matter how large, is still arbitrarily close to the beginning just because it's an infinite set. And so any number is, is arbitrarily close to the beginning. Um, but it, it definitely does feel like we're pushing towards that boundary line of uh, you know, what is scientific versus what is pseudoscience or what is even crackpot. Um, and this is actually a nice point to bring us to somewhat of a close because I know as a very you know, well-known physicist, you would be getting a lot of emails from people suggesting sort of new theories of physics. Um, I'm sure some of them are definitely in this crackpot category. And so I would love to actually ask you two questions here. Um, firstly, um, what is the most outlandish of these, uh, of these suggestions that you've received? Um, but then secondly... Have any of them actually been good? Have any of them resulted in sort of, you know, novel research? Um, well, the latter question is easier to answer. Um, it's basically no. <laughs> uh, the, so the, um, in fact, I, I, I'm sorry to keep mentioning my books, but, but my colleague Luke and I got so cross with um, these alternative ideas being presented to us. We wrote a book called The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook which is a guide to if you've got your idea, what it is you need to do to get cosmologists and astronomers to listen to you. Because the, what happens is, is that um, the, the ideas that get sent to you, the, the, the people haven't got a realistic idea of how science works. So they, they, they decided that they, they don't like Einstein for some reason, they don't like relativity. And the way that the universe really works is, and there'll some flowery description about plasma or magnetic fields or something like that, right? Uh, and then they will sort of say, right, uh, uh, you sort of say to them, right, that's a nice picture, but where's the maths? Where's the predictions? How does this compare to observations? They haven't done that bit. That's not the important bit. The important bit is, is the picture. And they're always kind of outlandish uh, in the sense that, you know, I've, I've seen... Uh, universe is powered by um, uh, electricity and magnetism and rotating universes and in universes where neutrons fall into black holes and get spat out as dark matter, etc. It, it's all, all words. It's all pictures. Uh, I have never seen anything developed past first-year physics kind of equations. 
And you are not going to overturn the universe with that level of understanding. Especially that number one thing that we tell them is, is know your enemy. If you're going to overturn the, uh, the current ideas of how we think the universe works, at least try and understand what we observe and what it is that we're talking about when we talk about our, our theories of cosmology, et cetera. So yeah, um, yeah, it, again, it's, it's interesting. Uh, some, some people rant. Uh, some people call you an idiot. I get, I get regular hate emails from a, a, a person who basically, you know, ca- calls me an idiot and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it's an interesting group. Yeah, it sounds like it. And that's actually a great segue to what comes next. I would love to close with a couple rapid fire questions. The first, ready to what you just said, it, it sounds like a lot of these people emailing you need to read a bit more, be a bit more educated. And so the first question is, what book should everybody read? I thought a little bit about this one. And you know what? Um, I, I didn't come up with an answer because I, I don't think there is one book that can do it all. I, I mean, as I've gotten older, what I've realized is how little I know about anything. And that, as, as I, again, as I've gotten older and older, has bothered me more and more. I didn't get, I didn't understand anything about um, mortgages and pension plans until I was in my 40s. And it's like, why didn't I know anything? So, so look, my, my advice is just to, to read broadly. And of course, uh, mix novels with the, the factual books. And, and I, I read across all of science. Uh, I, you know, I, I read physics, chemistry. I read, I read a lot of biology. Uh, but I'm, I'm currently knee deep in history, reading about the Templars and the Holy Roman Empire. Just, I just, you know, the 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 library of human knowledge is huge, and I, I have I have said I have got a pamphlet that I've I've managed to digest, and I still wonder about everything else out there. Yeah, that's that's sage advice, and it actually leads me on to my next question, which is, uh, what one piece of advice would you give to someone? looking to succeed in your field? Oh, I mean, that is, that is a good question as well. I, I, I really think that there is no single path to success, but my personal path has always been um, that you've got to work on uh, things that you enjoy working on. Now, one of the, one of the things that you can get in, in science and cosmology are the bandwagons. And somebody saying, oh, you know, you must go and work in, in, in galaxy evolution because everybody works in galaxy evolution. And fair enough, you know, you can go and work in galaxy evolution. But my, my, my philosophy is, has always been, um, what, it doesn't matter what topic, don't be blinkered and just look at the problems in front of you and think what would be interesting to deal with. And I, I've... Uh, from that, I, I said I've worked in theory, in observations, in computations. Uh, I have made a few observational discoveries, etc. No Nobel prizes, but no, I'm happy with that. But yeah, it's it's it said it it's similar to the reading. Is is that breadth? I think is better than the the laser like focus that some people have. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. That that really resonates, and it leads me on to my next question. Uh, you know, we've been talking about simulated intelligences, simulated life, and so on in this conversation. And one could imagine at some point we might be visited by one of these things, be it simulated or extraterrestrial or otherwise. And the question is, 
if we were and we had to choose a person, you know, either past or present to represent the uh, the human race to this intelligent other, who should we choose? Again, well, what, that's that's a really difficult question because in my mind, I could come up with a much longer list of who we shouldn't choose. You know, we shouldn't choose leaders of countries. We shouldn't choose people who want to do it, right? But, um, I, again, I... I cannot pick a single individual. The, the only name that came into my mind, uh, and again, it's just because of uh, ancient philosophy related to uh, humans and at least human kindness is going back to the Buddha. Uh, but of course, I am now looking back at the Buddha with 4,000 year uh, rose-tinted glasses. I have no idea what kind of person he was in the flesh. Hopefully he resembles what he has become today, but he would have to be, again, uh, I would, I would like something positive about the good aspects of humanity. Uh, there are many people who can, can biggie up the bad aspects, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a good choice. I expected you to choose a physicist. Yeah. I think maybe with physicists, you know, the problem I have with physicists is that I've read a lot of physics history. And not all of them were really good people, right? So, you know, I, I could say you're Einstein, but, you know, he had his own issues. But, uh, yeah, and, and definitely not Isaac Newton. He was famously, you know, he had a famous personality. So, yeah, no, no, I, I, again, I, I, think, I, think, I think physics is an important reflection of the goals of humanity, but it's not the only one. And again, again, as I get older and in the world we live in, I think kindness, it trumps more or less anything. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, I'm sure people listening to this would have loved this conversation, would love to uh, find you, find your stuff, read your books. Um, if I add some sort of links to the show notes, where, what should I add? Where, where, should, I, where should I send people? Um, so I'm, I'm, I am on Twitter. Maybe I'm one of the last ones on Twitter. I, I haven't worked <laughs> out any other platform yet i'm um, cosmic underscore horizons where i do try and just focus on 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 science uh, i do have a a, a, a web page which lists my books yeah, when i'm not teaching i do update it. it has been updated in a little while but it will be shortly i'll put some more stuff on there and and yeah look books are available in the usual places where books can be bought yes and i have been reading one of them a fortunate universe which i think was your first book if i'm not mistaken um i'm about halfway through and it's been great so we definitely recommend it uh garrett thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and i hope to do it again soon thank you very much it's been great thanks for listening to this episode of the paradigm podcast if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with friends and family and leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcast player. This goes a long way towards boosting our visibility and helping us attract even more fantastic guests. You can also head on over to our website where you'll be able to submit questions for our guests, get access to special Ask Me Anything episodes and some other nice perks. The Paradigm Podcast is free, but donations are very much welcome. For more, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.